Father in heaven, we didn't just hear it once, we heard it four times. Paul's reference to and treasuring of the gospel in that reading. Lord, Paul was a man who was, was possessed by the gospel. He didn't simply have a handle on the gospel. The gospel had a handle on him. He, he didn't simply want to master the gospel. He wanted to be mastered by it. And so it simply oozed out of him as he wrote. And Father, we want to be such people. We want to be so possessed of you that we too uh, live lives that impart the gospel to others, uh, to, uh, to other believers in terms of fellowship and strengthening our ties with one another. And Lord, as we spend time with those who don't know you, who are far from your kingdom, we want the gospel to be quick and early on our lips and our relationships with those who don't know you. And so we, we ask that you would come now and show us, lay bare this message of the gospel. For if we are not crystal clear as to what the message is, we will, we will not have hope of being people who proclaim it with power. So would you now manifest your presence, Lord, through the preaching of your word. May we see crystal clearly what the message of the gospel is so that we may live lives that live it and, and proclaim it. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? That is likely the most single important question in all of life. So important, I'll ask it again. What is the gospel? If we could survey each one of us in the sanctuary this morning or any given Sunday, in any sanctuary for that matter, even within the context of the local church, I think you might be surprised as to the wide array of answers that people may give to that simple question, and it's not meant to be a complicated one. Uh, when we're seeking to discern where one another are, spiritually speaking, it is among the most eye-opening and clarifying and helpful questions we can possibly ask one another. What is the gospel? Uh, countless times, likely, I have sat in my office or across the table at uh, Caribou with somebody or perhaps at Scotty B's, and just for me to little better get to know the person in front of me, I'll ask that question for my own benefit so I can discern a little better who I have sitting in front of me. And like I said, I don't mean it as a trick question. I mean it as a clear, straightforward, honest inquiry. What is the gospel? Would you please tell me, in your own words, your understanding of the gospel? It's, it's the first question that we as pastors and elders ask somebody in a membership interview. Uh, it is also the first question that I would have on the table uh, when someone comes to me who's interested in water baptism. In fact, it's far and away the most important question we can ask in those contexts. What is the gospel? And over the years, I've, I've heard all sorts of answers to that question. As, as I reflect on the various answers I've encountered to this question, it reminds me of the game show Family Feud, if you have some familiarity with that. I feel like Richard Dawson, you know. We have surveyed 100 people. And the top five answers are on the board. So here's the question. What is the gospel? For example, some people don't distinguish between the Bible and the gospel. 
And so I'll say, what is the gospel? And frequently people will respond, you mean the Bible? What is the Bible? And I'll say, well, we're in the ballpark with that answer. But no, I don't mean the Bible. The Bible contains the gospel, but the Bible and the gospel are not the same thing. So what's the gospel? Uh, Sometimes the answer will come back that I believe in God. The gospel is that I believe in God. So theism, that they have a belief in the creator of the universe. And that is is wonderful. That's really, really good. But that's not the gospel. Um, Other folks, when they hear this question, it's usually folks with a church background, perhaps a high church Protestant like me or a Roman Catholic background, if that's your background, and they'll say, I know the gospel. The gospel is that point in the worship service when everyone in the sanctuary stands to hear a reading from either Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Now, you're only laughing if you're Catholic or you grew up in a high church Protestant background. Those of you who grew up in evangelical churches think it odd if you didn't have a real strong liturgical background, but not for those of us with that background. I I bet, in fact, if you had asked me what is the gospel when I was 16 years old, I would have told you it's the part in the worship service when we all stand up and the man up front reads from that big book from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I would have told you that, and I would have been wrong. So what is the gospel? Well, let's start with the word as it first came to us. The word gospel comes from the Greek term euangelizomai, and in English, we would just say evangel, evangel. The word euangelizomai, or evangel, literally means good news or glad tidings. So the gospel is good news. It's, it's glad tidings. It's a message. We hear echoes of this word in Luke chapter 2, verse 10, when the angel of the Lord says to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. The the angel says, I bring you gospel. I bring you evangel. I bring you glad tidings, good news. So the gospel is good news. And as we press into this good news, what we discover is that this is good news specifically about Jesus Christ. And what is that news? Well, Mark Dever, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., asks, what is the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, the good news is not simply that we are okay. The good news is not simply that God is love. The good news is not simply that Jesus wants to be our friend. The good news is not simply that we should live right. To really hear the gospel is to be shaken to your core. To really hear the gospel is to change. And he summarizes with this. He says, have you heard the gospel? Not a soothing word about your goodness or about God's acceptance or Jesus' inoffensive willingness to befriend all and sundry. Even some convicting word about getting rid of sin in your life. But have you heard the Bible's great message about God and us? Have you heard the gospel? Well, here's the big idea this morning. There are many, many doctrines a Christian believer can make it all the way to heaven without knowing. But the gospel is just not one of them. There are many Christian doctrines that a believer can make it all the way to heaven without knowing. But the gospel is simply not one of them. And as intense 
as my love is for biblical doctrine and Christian theology, that is saying something. Um, I have to admit that the thief on the cross heard some awfully reassuring words from Jesus in the final moments of his life, didn't he? And this man didn't even have the benefit of a Sunday school education, much less a seminary education. So evidently, there's a lot of Christian doctrines. You can make it all the way to heaven without knowing. I am confident that the thief on the cross could not understand or appreciate the intricacies of difference between supra and infralapsarianism. I am sure that the thief on the cross did not know an Arminian from an Armenian. I am confident of that. But he was assured of this, that as he looked to Jesus on the cross and asked, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied to him, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. I'm confident when he heard that from the Savior that he knew what he needed to know. This Labor Day weekend affords us the opportunity to preach this single standalone sermon just tackling this question, what is the gospel? And at the same time, it's going to function as the doorway into our new fall sermon series entitled Evangelical Convictions, a study of the EFCA statement of faith. Now, more on that next week. I do in, invite you to take a preaching calendar and fellowship hall as you leave today, so at the very least you can pray for our, our series into the weeks and months ahead. But more on that series next Sunday. This morning, we simply want to answer that all-important that all single question, what is the gospel? So what is it? In order to answer that question, I'll invite you to open a Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. If you're still open to Romans, you can just go forward a few pages to page 961 if you've got a red Bible. Page 961 in the red Bibles. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. I'll read the first portion of the text. I'll read verse 1 to the first half of verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning... In verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Put a comma in the reading right there, just for the purposes of point one. There are many Christian doctrines. A believer can make it all the way to heaven without knowing, but the gospel is not one of them. Point number one today. Every Christ follower must know the continuing priority of the gospel. Every Christ follower must know the continuing priority of the gospel. In the first three verses of chapter 15, Paul uses no less than eight different active verbs to display for his readers just how alive and how operative this thing called the gospel is. Uh, behold the extraordinary flexibility and activity of the gospel. The gospel is all over the place in these first three verses. Uh, when I was a little boy, I used to collect baseball cards, like many of you did. And introvert that I am, I would literally spend hours upon hours 
in my bedroom, sorting these cards, uh, learning the names of the leagues and their teams and their logos and their mascots and their players and their stats and, of course, their positions. During those hours of sorting and studying these cards and players and positions, from time to time, I'd come across a player whose position was designated infield-outfield. Infield-outfield. It always struck me as curious. It was a designation that, in time, I'd come to understand as a utility player. A utility player, I learned, is a, is a ball player who's competent in more than one position. In some cases, several positions. A utility player is an all-around athlete. A player who might just be as comfortable behind the plate catching a fastball as he, as he would be in the, on the mound throwing one. A utility player may have equal skills when it comes to catching a pop-up in right field as it would be to picking up a, a grounder at shortstop. A utility player is a jack-of-all-trades. Okay, That or something very close to that is what Paul thinks of the gospel. It is a utility doctrine. It is an all-around jack-of-all-trades teaching. Paul is outlining in these verses the incredible diversity of the gospel. In verse 1, we learn that we can remind one another of the gospel. It can be preached and received. In verse 2, it goes on to say that we are being saved by it if we hold fast to it unless we believed in vain. Finally, verse 3, Paul says that the gospel can be delivered and once again received. This gospel, whatever it is, we don't know what it is yet, it is all over the field of your life. From your first step in the faith straight through your days of your, as, you're, as you walk with God right up until the moment when you take your last breath and you step into God's very presence. The gospel is to enjoy priority, continuing priority in your life. In the pages of the Bible, there is nothing, hear me, nothing so as important as the priority of the gospel. How could we conclude such a thing? We conclude from what Paul says about it in verse 3. Still speaking of the gospel in context, Paul writes, for I delivered to you as of first importance. There's nothing in Scripture that's spoken of in this way. The only thing I can possibly think of is the way that Jesus states the great commandment in Matthew 22, 37 to 40, where Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What's interesting is that Paul, a Jewish Bible scholar that he was, doesn't reach for the great commandment here as the matter of first importance. It is stunning, actually, that he doesn't do that. We might expect him to say, now I would remind you, brothers, of the great commandment to love God and love your neighbor. This is the matter of first importance. But he doesn't do that. Paul prioritizes the gospel above the greatest commandment that there could possibly be issued. Why? The answer is simple, and please don't ever forget this. Because the gospel creates the conditions for obeying the call to love God and love people. The gospel is that important and that foundational. Without the gospel, we cannot love God or people. John makes this abundantly clear. We studied this in 1 John 4.19 over the summer. 1 John 4.19, John proclaims, we love because he first loved us. 
we love. That's the great commandment. Because he first loved us. That's the gospel. More on this in point two. Let me just wrap up this point. Uh, In his wonderful book entitled The Discipline of Grace, Jerry Bridges, who went to be with the Lord just this past spring, wrote these words. The gospel is not only the most important message in all of history, it is the only essential message in all of history. The Bible teaches that. I believe that. The gospel, uh, reminded and received and stood in and held on to and delivered, that's the matter of first importance. It was for Paul, it was to be for the people in first century Corinth, and the question is, is it for you this morning? Is it the matter of first importance in your life? Was it the matter of first importance at one point in your life? Has the, has the gospel slipped from pli- pride of place in your life to second place or third place? If that question makes you uneasy, I invite you to hang in there with me over the next few moments as I preach the gospel. Because faith in the gospel comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So every Christ follower must know the continuing priority of the gospel. But second point today, every Christ follower must know the compelling promises of the gospel. Every Christ follower must know the compelling promises of the gospel. Please follow along with me as I read from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, down to verse 8. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Every Christ follower must know the compelling promises of the gospel. What is the gospel? And now we're prepared for an answer. Mount Evangelical Free Church, lend me your ears. For I will proclaim to you the gospel. The gospel message is that Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead. That's the gospel. Christ died for our sins and was resurrected from the dead. If you are ever asked that question point blank by another person, now you have your answer. The gospel, the good news is that Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead. Now, you can take longer in explaining that to an individual, and in some cases you may have to. In most cases you may have to. But it's not more complicated than that. The essence of the gospel message is quite simple. It's that Christ died and was raised. The gospel is a message about Jesus, his death and his resurrection. That's the message of the gospel. Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead. Now, Why is that good news? I'll tell you why it's good news. Because of what Paul calls our sins in verse 3. Our 
sins. It's another way of speaking about our supreme selfishness as human beings. Our sins. The one true and living God, perfect and holy and majestic and breathtaking in beauty and worthy of our worship, this God made us to live in fellowship with him and with one another. We were made to love and enjoy and treasure and relish our relationship with God. God would be our God, our source of life and pleasure and preoccupation and discussion and utter delight. We were designed to bring Him glory as we sought to find our joy and our all in Him. But we know that this is not the way that any of us live, at least not full-time. We are not born saints. We are born sinners. Sinners that see this God and His plans to glorify Himself in our lives as oppressive and narrow and ultimately not attractive. And we know that this God exists. That's why the gospel is not simply belief in God. We know that this God exists. That's the one thing we do know. But what we do with this God is that we press the knowledge of Him down and we ship Him out and we invite other realities in to worship instead. We as human beings are chronic worshipers. We can't help ourselves. And so we desire and crave and we want. We want other things than God. We want power and praise and esteem and security and food and sex and TV and possessions and position. We live our lives and worship and serve these realities rather than God. And God is offended. He is angry about this. Our idolatry kindles his wrath. It offends him and rightly so. God alone is worthy of our praise. And he would be perfectly within his creator rights to smash us into oblivion in one act of just and holy wrath because of our idolatry. But the Bible says that 2,000 years ago, something else happened. That God the Father commissioned his son to become a man, a first century Jew born as a little baby in Bethlehem. Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the Jewish people and the Savior of the world, he lived a sinless and perfect life in the place of sinful people, and he died a sin-bearing, atoning death on the cross in the place of sinful people. And it turns out that death couldn't hold him because on the third day, the heart of Jesus of Nazareth began beating again. His lungs began drawing oxygen again. His eyes opened once again. And he emerged from the grave victorious over sin and death and Satan. That's the gospel. I once sat in my office attempting to explain the gospel to an individual who had heard it preached for many years. And I tried to use language other than the scriptures. And so I said, well, imagine this. Imagine that you are standing on I-94 northbound. And you are blind and deaf. 
and there is an 18-wheel Mack truck headed right for you. You can't see it. You can't hear it. You have no idea the danger that you're in. And then at the last split second, somebody comes and, and just immediately steps into the way, pushing you onto the side of the road, and the truck hits this individual instead. They're just absolutely ground into the pavement. And then the moment you hit the side of the road, you turn, and you have sight, and you have hearing. And what you see is a dead man who has just put himself in your place. And you are so shocked, you're simply catching your breath for three days looking at this man. And what happens after three days? He stands up and turns toward you and said, I did that for you. That's the gospel. And as a result, God now stands prepared to forgive us to justify us and adopt us and to welcome us into his family if we will turn from our sin in genuine repentance and turn toward Christ in sincere faith. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's a message to be received and preached and stood in and held fast to. Imagine if somebody took an 18-wheel Mack truck for you. You would spend the rest of your life talking about it and living for him. And making much of him. Well, those are the promises of the gospel. And not only are these promises, but Paul states them as compelling promises. Uh, Promises that call us and constrain us by sheer force to consider their reality. How does he do that? He does that by following up each aspect of the good news with a second truth that substantiates it. So not only did Christ die for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, verse 4 goes on to say that he was buried Why does Paul mention the burial of Jesus at this point? What's the significance of the burial of our Lord? Well, it confirms his death. While unbelievers down through history may take issue with what exactly happened on the cross, people do not take issue with the results of the cross. Jesus of Nazareth drew his last breath and was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. History tells us that much. That's made plain by the fact that he was buried Now, verses 4 to 8 go on to describe another reality that unbelievers must deal with, and that would be this headache-producing reality of an empty tomb. The empty tomb is not denied. The question is, how did it get empty? Well, Paul gives his angle on that. Verses 4 to 8 go on to speak not only of the promise of his resurrection, but of a series of further realities that substantiate it, namely his appearances. And just as the burial of our Lord confirms his death, so too the appearances confirm his, his life. So four times we read that Christ appeared. Do you see it? He appeared to Peter, to Cephas in verse 5, along with the 12. Verse 6 speaks of a single appearance to more than 500 Christians at one time. And Paul adds in this same verse that while some of these believers have died, most have not, and they're available for follow-up if you'd like to interview them about their engagement with the risen Lord, they'd be happy to corroborate what Paul is saying here. That's amazing. Furthermore, Jesus appeared to his half-brother James, verse 7, author of the book of James, leader of the Jerusalem church, early church martyr. And finally, Paul himself was a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. That's what made him an apostle, though he was formerly a blasphemer and an outright terrorist to the early church. So these are the compelling promises of the gospel. 
Christ died for our sins, substantiated by his burial. Christ was raised on the third day, a, a reality substantiated by the mention of his appearances. And allow me just to say one more thing about the gospel before we turn to our last point, and it's simply this, that the gospel is utterly unique. There's nothing like the gospel in any other world religion on the planet. There has never been and there will never be. The Christian faith is utterly unlike any other religious worldview in human history. Every single religious worldview, apart from the Christian faith, proceeds on the premise that I behave and therefore I am accepted before God. I behave and therefore I am accepted. The gospel runs in the absolute opposite direction. The gospel says, in Christ I am accepted and therefore I behave. I am accepted by God and therefore I behave. That is good news if you know your heart even a little bit. It's the only worldview on the planet that preaches this message, and I trust that you hear it today. The gospel message is that Christ died for our sins and was resurrected from the dead. Every Christ follower must know the compelling promises of the gospel. You can become a Christ follower today if you turn from your sins and you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Today can be the day of your salvation. We have one final point today, and it's this. Every Christ follower must know the converting power of the gospel. Every Christ follower must know the converting power of the gospel. By the way, I was working on this on Wednesday and I got to my final CP pairing with the blanks and I thought, you know what, the outline is going to be better than the sermon. And I think that's probably true. Just stick with the Bible and stick with these three points. That's the only thing you might remember anyway in the days ahead. Every Christ follower must know the converting power of the gospel. If we've said it once, we've said it a thousand times in this church. The gospel is not simply about pardon for your sins. It's about power to live a new life. The gospel message includes the good news of Christ's substitutionary death on the cross, and that secures our pardon. But the gospel message also includes the good news of Christ's victorious resurrection from the grave, and that furnishes our power. Augustine of Hippo wrote, Paul did not labor in order to receive grace, but he received grace so that he might labor. I love that. This is, this is exactly what Paul says in verses 9 to 11. Look with me here as we close. 1 Corinthians 15, 9 to 11. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether it was I or they, so we preach. And so you believed. By the way, just a, the only thing I'll mention about verse 11 here, Corinth, like the 21st century church, was huge on favorite preachers. They had factions, they had individuals, they had certain podcasts that they listened to, and they elevated these to super preachers in the, in the city of Corinth. 
And Paul just levels the playing field here. He says, look, the gospel is the matter of first importance. Jesus is what we preach, not ourselves. And so whether it was I or they who preached, the point is you believe. You believe. But Paul didn't labor in order to receive grace. He received grace that he might labor. Don't you get this sense from the Apostle Paul that the gospel was for him, something not just that he looked back on as a relic from his moment of conversion, but instead something that he viewed as a present tense resource from which he drew daily help. I think that's what he's saying here. Verse 10, again, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Grace is with me now is what Paul's saying. Hmm. And not just with me back then. If Paul was clear about anything in his life, it's that grace changes us. Changes us. In fact, he uses another verb in Titus 2.11. He says it trains us. Grace trains us. Titus 2.11 and 12, the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That's the pardon of the cross. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's the power of the resurrection. And though Paul does not name him here in 1 Corinthians 15, it is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit that he's referring to, without a doubt. The presence and power of the third person of the Trinity living on the interior of his life. Do you know the converting power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Increasing freedom from selfish ambition. And instead, increasing incremental power from the Holy Spirit to live in the strength that God supplies to the glory that Jesus Christ deserves. Are you familiar with the converting power of the gospel? Well, there are many Christian doctrines. A believer can make it all the way to heaven without knowing, but the gospel is simply just not one of them. Christ follower must know the continuing priority of the gospel, the compelling promises of the gospel, and the converting power of the gospel. Next week is kickoff Sunday. That means we have Sunday school for all ages that begins at 9 a.m., followed with the worship gathering at 10.30. Not only are we going to have the privilege and opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper, alongside from one another seven days from now, but we will also take our next step into this preaching series with a message entitled Gospel-Shaped Doctrine, how the gospel impacts all we believe. The focus next week is going to be how do we take this message, the matter of first importance, and how does it relate to everything else that we believe as Christians? Not simply that Jesus Christ has the highest place of priority, but he enjoys the focal point of all centrality, all things connected to the message of Jesus Christ, his cross and his resurrection. Connecting the dots of the Bible for us, for our confession of faith and our work of mission to be and make disciples. Well, that's, that's next week.